Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, Aaron. Hey, everybody. And fourth-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Joshua, so glad you could make it. Hey, Aaron. Good seeing you. Nice to see you. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to discuss physician-assisted suicide and all the various controversial issues surrounding that. And we are honored to have with us Dr. David Orentlicker. Dr. Orentlicker, or Dr. O, as the students know him, is a member of the Nevada Assembly and previously served as a member of the Indiana House of Representatives. He was trained at Harvard Law and Harvard School of Medicine, widely recognized for his expertise in health law and constitutional law. Dr. O, as testified before Congress, had his scholarship cited by the U.S. Supreme Court and has served on many national, state, and local commissions. He is the author of the book, Matters of Life and Death, Making Moral Theory Work in Medical Ethics and the Law, and his new book is Two Presidents Are Better Than One, The Case for a Bipartisan Executive Branch. David, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I thought we'd start just because you're such, you're such a well-placed position because you're a physician, a lawyer, professor, uh, a representative in the political arena, Um, maybe you could just start by just uh, kind of the issue of physician-assisted death and suicide and hastening one's death. Are there, what is the process? Could you describe the process overall? Are there some commonalities? There are about 10 states uh, in the United States that have laws, uh, death with dignity is, are some of the titles for these. Can you lay out what are the, some of the common features and the process in general? Sure. And it, it's very important that there is a convergence, even though we've got 10 different states, and states often vary in how they approach a legal issue. And even though there are different states, different parts of the country, and even though they did it in different ways, sometimes by a a public referendum on the November ballot as in Oregon, sometimes legislatures would pass it. In Montana, it was by a decision by the state Supreme Court. They all converged in very important ways. One is you have to be an adult, at least 18 years old, and able to make decisions, or as we would say, possess decision-making capacity but competent, mentally able to decide for yourself. And then, and this is really maybe the most critical, you have to be terminally ill. That is, you're not expected to live more than six months. And all states have those three requirements. And we don't see all those three in other countries, and that's important too, but we see them in the United States. And that's consistent, no state. Uh, diverges from that. Another thing that's very important that distinguishes us from other countries is that the patient has to self-administer the lethal medication. So you get pills, you dissolve them in water, you, you drink this potion. And in other countries, Netherlands, Belgium, Canada, you can have administration by a physician or in Canada, also a nurse practitioner. But in the United States, it has to be self-administered. 
and that's very important. So those are the common commonalities. Other things that are that you see across states, but you see variation, the waiting period. We want to make sure this is something, a genuine expression of your autonomy, that this is not a, you know, a spontaneous and, and temporary kind of thing that you really mean it. And it's a persistent desire. So the standard approach is to have a two, like a two week waiting period, 15 days in Oregon and other states. Um, that's almost un universal, but not entirely. Hawaii wants an extra five days. So it's a 20 day wait in Hawaii. But in New Mexico, which is the most recent state to adopt aid and dying, it's a 48 hour wait. And, and the, the idea there is some people, they're so close to death that if they have to wait 15 days, they're gonna die before they, they, be, they qualify. So that's why you see New Mexico shortening and that's why in Oregon, they changed their law to allow physicians to waive the 15 day wait if they think you know, the patient's not gonna survive that long and they're confident that this is what the patient really would want. Well, I was gonna ask about <laughs> how that compares to gun waiting periods and whether there's been a comparison there given that surely some people's aim in buying a gun might be to end, the, end their suffering. That's an interesting question because you're right. I don't know how they compare. The comparison that I look to is, you know, we re require this waiting period to make sure this is really what the patient would want. But what's interesting for patients who refuse life-sustaining treatment or say, I want my ventilator withdrawn, or they're on chronic dialysis because of kidney failure. And after years, you know, the, it keeps them alive, but the quality of life is diminished even when you're on dialysis. And we know every year, I forget if it's five or 10% of patients on chronic dialysis decide not to continue. We don't have waiting periods for people who refuse life-sustaining treatment, even though the same concerns arise. Is this something they really mean or are they having a bad day and maybe we and they should think about it for a while? So... Um, so the fact that we've been able to have the right to refuse life-sustaining treatment, which now goes back, well, over th about 35 years now, um, or 45 years, and, and we're comfortable with having less stringent safeguards to refuse dialysis or ventilators or feeding tubes does suggest that we might not need to be as strict with aid in dying. That actually brings up, I think, two questions, perhaps a little bit unrelated. Um, one of which is the six month, sort of the uh, prognosis. Um, what if that's less hard and fast? Like, let's say somebody has, uh, they gave me six months to a year, but I don't wanna go through, you know, my, my mother-in-law um, went through 10 years of chemo treatment and passed just in September. And, you know, see, seeing that process, they gave her five to 10 years, but what if it had been, you know, two years? How is it that we make that determine? Or what if it's unclear? What if it's like, well, maybe six months, can that still be something that flies under and they can get approval? Yeah, so that's a good question, because you're right, for some people, some diseases, it's not as clear. If you have 
breast cancer, ovarian cancer, lung cancer, uh, estimates about life expectancy tend to be fairly accurate. When you're talking about congestive heart failure, Alzheimer's disease, there's a lot more variation. And so exactly how, how sure do you have to be? The statutes are not, don't, aren't that specific. They just say, you know, in the reasonable medical judgment, not expected to live more than six months. That, that actually is the same definition to qualify for hospice benefits under the Medicare program. You have to, to qualify for Medicare to pay for hospice care. Uh, your life expectancy can't be more than six months. Uh, that's been studied, and one study found that doctors, you know, people who qualified under for the Medicare benefit did die, 85% of them did die within six months. So there's a fair, pretty good accuracy, and, and again, it depends on the patient's prognosis, but uh, in practice, it's a good, I don't, I, I've not seen how doctor, how careful doctors are, how uh, strict they are. I'm sure there's variation among doctors, but the idea is if, if you think the patient could live a year or two, then they wouldn't be eligible. And, and that raises the question, why is that the, why six months? If somebody's going to die within a year, do they have less of a, an interest or. And, and it seems like there's no, um, well, let me ask this, not say this. Let's say, so Joshua brought up two years. Let's say you're, you have a two-year prognosis and you get to year 1.5, and now you've got six months left based on that two-year prognosis you were given. Do you have to go back to the doctor and get a, a form that says, well, now I'm at six months? And, and I imagine some people might be hesitant to commit to that, knowing what it, what it means. Yeah, I think you would, because remember, you have to trigger the way you have to your doctor has to confirm that you're eligible. Then you have to have, go through the waiting period. So you would, and then have to make sure you possess decision-making capacity that a year and a half later. So you would have to sort of start the process when you're at that six months. You know, I guess this actually circles into my, my second question, which is probably a little bit of a, a deeper thing here is that the distinction between uh, physician-assisted death, and let's say, like the example you gave with dialysis, with removing or withdrawing some life-sustaining treatment, that brings up the same question along the lines of sort of medical paternalism. I understand wanting to to sort of balance beneficence with uh, non-maleficence, but then how is it that we think about those different from a legal perspective? If I'm withdrawing life-sustaining treatment, that's the same. And would somebody stop me from doing so if, for instance, I wasn't of sound mind and body from depression, severe depression, maybe a vegetative type of depression? Would that disqualify me from making the decision to withdraw life-sustaining treatment? And how does that compare? I hope there's a question in there somewhere that's coming yeah. through. So you're right, it should that you should, any decision, whether it's to refuse dialysis or to drink a lethal dose of medication, if you have a serious depression, it should disqualify you. Although one question is, should it always disqualify you? But in general, right. Right. and we can talk about that, but you should possess decision-making capacity. But it, it is an important question. Why do we distinguish, right? In every state, you can refuse a ventilator or dialysis, but only in about 10 states can you get a prescription to end your life. And the usual view is that, well, there's a difference but, you know, between 
actively causing a death and letting somebody die. But um, my view is that's not really what's going on. That mm-hmm. Because after all, if, if I went into an intensive care unit tomorrow and started turning off ventilators, I, I'd be prosecuted for murder and I couldn't right. say how just letting them die. So, so here's, as I've studied this, my, my way to un- understand what's going on is we have this sense that when people have a serious and irreversible disease, cancer or ALS, um, and they're suffering greatly, at some point, we, you know, quantity of life, length of life matters, but so does quality of life. And sometimes we, we recognize that when suffering becomes so great and you've got this illness, serious illness, we can't reverse or cure we, we think, and this is pretty common across religions and countries, that at some point people ought to be able to say, I can't go on any longer. Mm. And, and getting at that sort of moral ethic that, and, you know, talking about beneficence and maleficence, well, when somebody is seriously suffering from a, a disease we can't treat, then forcing them to go on can be inhumane. And, and, and so... That's, that's what we're trying to get at. That's the kind of ethical moral principle that I think is at stake. And then our laws, how do we, make, how do we allow that without getting into people who have depression and should be treated by you all to it. rather than ending their lives? So how do we protect against that risk of abuse? And I, I, we can look at the refusal of treatment versus aid in dying is a kind of a, a, a legal way to distinguish between the morally acceptable death and the morally unacceptable death. Because when you think about who refuses a ventilator, people who have a serious and irreversible disease and are suffering, who do you think of when they take a lethal dose of medication? Well, well some people have a serious disease, but Marilyn Monroe, Bill Clinton's legal counsel, Vincent Foster, maybe a college student who broke up with a partner or failed an exam. And when we think of the typical suicide, we don't think those are justified, unlike the typical refusal of treatment. So that's one way I, I, I try to explain it. And, and the way aid in dying comes in, well, okay, yes, the typical suicide is problematic, but when somebody is dying from cancer and suffering greatly, that doesn't look like Marilyn Monroe or Vincent Foster or the de- depressed college student. It looks like the person who's tired of dialysis after, you know, the, the diminished quality of life. And so if we say aid in dying just for terminally ill patients, by definition, these are people who have a serious and irreversible illness and are probably suffering greatly because that's the normal course of a terminal illness. So that's what I think is going on, that it's not about changing our moral thinking. It's about getting laws to fit our moral thinking. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched. We're here talking about physician-assisted suicide and all the various kind of ways to define that and think about that and all the, the, the quandaries that we're presented with, with Dr. David Orenthlicker. Um, 
uh, uh, David, I, I, I want to ask, um, you know, cons- right when you said at the beginning where <clears throat> there's always a distinction, between, um, they, the person has to lift or take the medicine uh, with their own power. I just, just, just kind of thinking it you know, just uh, from in prepping for the show, I read that and I just, how is that so much morally a superior position than if the person has the exact same brain, but just can't use their arms. Okay. So then now that person can never do that. I, I don't, can you explain why we've taken pains to make that distinction? Yeah. And that, that's a very important critique of our laws because yes, you could have somebody with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, mentally competent, has six months or less to live, but can't, is paralyzed and can't, you know, take drink themselves. Why should they be not denied aid and dying? And what we see in other countries, Netherlands, Belgium, Canada, that we they do allow for physician administration, or again in Canada, even nurse practitioners. And in fact, in parts, it's, there are some hospitals in Canada that won't allow self-administration because it may not go as well. Uh, it and it complicates things. Maybe they you know, uh, lose consciousness before they take the full dose. So there are definite advantages. The other advantage of the physician administering is they're there at the, when the patient, when at the time of the life-ending act to make sure the patient still has decision-making capacity, still really wants to do this. And it may be important to the patient to have their physician by their side. Um, so I think you know, if, if we're going to see changes, that's where we'll in a way to a place to see change. But why do we have that rule? I think it's a very it's an, an additional safeguard. If the patient has to perform the, the life ending act, it makes us more confident that this is what the patient really wants. If somebody else can perform the life ending act, will the patient who might have had second thoughts? express those second thoughts and stop things. You know, everybody's gathered, they've scheduled this, family's flown in, the doctor's there, the patient's having some ambivalence. Will they feel like, I can't change my mind because everybody's, you know, made this big effort to be here. So, so that I think is, that's the argument for requiring the patient to do it, to really make sure this is what the patient wants. Um, I want to also ask you a, a question about another uh, one of the critiques, and thank you, Aaron, for bringing this to our attention. Um, I'm curious, since the Oregon Death with Dignity Act um, has been in effect, have any of the slippery slope arguments or fears actually materialized? And what, and and then on along those lines, what do you think of the sexual assault survivor? Um, Noah Pothoven, uh, I believe in, in the Netherlands, who used physician-assisted suicide. Yeah, so, um, so the slippery slope concerns have loomed large when the Supreme Court rejected the constitutional right to aid in dying back in 1997. That was one of the concerns that, you know, there was, when people looked at the Netherlands experience, a lot of people worried about abuses there and there's just, you know, controversy about the nature, but the point is, yes, people do worry about it. We have not seen that. We've had more than 20 years now of experience in 
Oregon and concerns about, you know, would be marginalized communities, less educated, poor minorities and so on. And we haven't seen that. If you look, compare people who die by aid and dying with people who die for other causes in Oregon, um, no differences in terms of race or sex, whether they have health care insurance. Uh, one difference you do see, or whether they have ho hospice care, so we don't have to worry about people choosing aid and dying because they haven't gotten good pain relief because over 90% are getting hospice care. The one difference we do see is that people who choose aid and dying have actually are better educated. And one of the criticisms of aid and dying is it, it's something that kind of, it's a luxury, right? You know, if you're poor and a minority, you're fighting to get care because you're often denied care you need. And so that, that's their priority to, to get care that they have trouble getting and to be in a position where you get all the care you want. And now you're thinking, I want to end my life. Uh, that tends to be something that actually appeals to more privileged members of society. So we haven't seen it. The percentage of people who die by aid and dying in Oregon is like, I don't know, half a percent, maybe a little bit more ticked up a little bit. It's not a widely used thing. So no, we don't see evidence of abuse and slippery slope. Wait, I'm sorry. Let's, can we just clarify that half a percent of, of no, certainly not of all deaths, what of half a percent deaths. of what? Of all half. deaths. Are uh, die by aid and dying. That's correct. In Oregon. Now you that's see huge. High... Is that not, is that, that seems much larger than I would have expected. Oh, right. Really? That's why well, I, I think of, you know, if I think of a hundred deaths, I'm thinking of, you know, a huge number of these deaths are going to be from car accidents. And then some of them are going to be, you know, medical. And then that, you know, every once in a huge while, there's going to be someone who fit all of these extremely stringent criteria who'll get this but i didn't think that it was happening on a societal level where one in every or one yeah one in every 200 people yeah. who dies is going this way yeah so i guess that's that shows that the law has been successful in its rollout yeah yeah i would say too that if you want to measure the success it's not only the people who use it to die but it's also the people who get the prescription and don't use it, right? They're terminally ill, they're, they're managing now, but they're worried that it will become intolerable. And that's very stressful. And having that prescription or the bottle of pills to know that if it ever gets intolerable, I have something that'll take care of that. To relieve, avoid, you know, take that, source of anxiety and stress when you've got a lot on your mind when you're terminally ill. That's very valuable. And it, it's also for everybody in Oregon who knows, or in California or other states, that you, you know they're not even close to a terminal illness. They don't even have a serious illness, but they know at some point, it's like an insurance policy. I hope I never use it, right? Over 99% of people won't use it. But knowing that it's there, that that provides a lot of benefit. Yeah. I now, wonder if I, yeah, sorry. Question ahead. about I don't know that specific case, but I do know when you look at where the slippery slope concerns are, this is where I think the US requirement of a terminal illness really is important. That you don't see to the extent we see slippery slope concerns, 
whether whether it was when Jack Kevorkian was doing his own private, you know, uh, practice of uh, aiding people's dying uh, early on, and then in other countries, or when you see it in this country where it's not legal and people are doing it, you know, back alley, black market kind of uh, aid and dying. It's the people who are not terminally ill. Those are the patients that raise the greatest concerns and the, the ones that you look and you say, boy, these people should have seen a psychiatrist and probably would have dealt with their concerns. And there's a study that looked at that in uh, Belgium, I think. But what they found is about half the people there who didn't have a terminal illness, you know, social isolation and loneliness was a big factor for half of those people. And that's worrisome. So, so I think if you're worried about slippery slope, that's, I think the terminal illness requirement is where, you know, the, is the strongest basis to avoid so far in terms of the data in terms of avoiding slippery slopes, requiring a terminal illness is critical, I think. I think that's where a little bit of the rub comes actually for my question around this is, you know, we're, you know, uh, Alan, myself, psychiatrist, and there are cases that I, I think I've seen, I won't speak for you, Alan, that what do we do with people that have severe terminal, not terminal, well, terminal in the sense that it's lifelong mental illness. I mean, those that have such refractory depression that no medication exists that could treat it ECT across the board and that it's, you know, the depression is so trenchant and we don't have tools to address that. I mean, in some ways the, you are sort of withholding it, an option of like, okay, well, you just need to continue to suffer because it's not terminal in the way that we think about cancer yeah. or, um, you know, really, really severe schizophrenia. You could make the argument about soundness of mind, but it is a terminal diagnosis to receive, to have schizophrenia. And most we can do is ameliorate symptoms. Yeah, and I think you're right. That There's a powerful argument there. Somebody who has suffered for decades and they've tried everything and it's clear they've got a serious and irreversible illness and they're suffering greatly. They satisfy our kind of mor moral ethic here, so why not? And, and I think what you see if you read court decisions and other commentaries, what's missing there is something, confidence that we have an objective measure, right? Terminal illness, somebody's dying of cancer, we can measure that. We got scans that show the, the metastases all over the body, and so we, we are very uncomfortable when we don't have objective measures, and certainly in the United States, obviously in the Netherlands and Belgium, they're much more comfortable with that degree of uncertainty. But here we're not, or when you read court cases and they talk about suffering, they talk about it in terms of physical pain, because again, we think that's more objective than psychological suffering, that even point though in reality, it's not. That point sits well with me because as much as Joshua, your point sits well with me too, because there has been history of state entities using psychiatry. And then actually we end up getting blamed for it often, but um, using psychiatry for some person who thinks differently than the rest of society, that the state doesn't happen to like how they're thinking, who may be 30, 
years ahead of their time, to quote Robert Sapolsky, um, ends up being able to be called schizophrenic, meeting a lot of the criteria and which are often subjective and, and locked away in, a, in an institution. And so that, that could presumably be twisted in similar ways. Aaron, you had a question? Yeah, I, I want, I, before we, we only have about a minute left, but I, but I wanted to kind of talk about the, the third party folks that are involved with uh, evaluating whether the person ha is, has the ability to make this decision or is allowed to make decisions, things like psychiatrists, psychologists, um, or just the physician with a, just a depression screening. I, I kinda, it kind of runs the gamut or, or judge perhaps. Where do you, what are your thoughts on that, about the involvement, perhaps even uh, family? What what is your thoughts about uh, who should who should be given voice and who should contribute to this process? Yeah, so if we're looking for areas for strengthening the you know limit requirements, this is one I think the strongest argument is for you know requiring an evaluation by a mental health professional. We know that most doctors non who aren't in the mental health area often aren't very good. And they, you know, it's easy to say when somebody's seriously ill, well, of course I'd be depressed if I were seriously ill and, and to just miss a treatable depression. So, and, and, and while most states say, if the pr pr physician who's, you know, writing the prescription or the uh, consulting physician, because there has to be a consulting physician, thinks that there's issues about mental health, they have to refer the patient. Hawaii actually requires a mental health professional to assess. So I think you can make a good case for that. The, on the other side, why I'm, you know, I'm not so sure we don't do that for people who refuse ventilators or dialysis. So I, I think we should be consistent. If, if we think that's important and, and you can make a case for that, I think we should just be say for anybody who's choosing death, they ought to have a somebody assess them who has mental health expertise. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked with Dr. David Orenflicker about a physician-assisted suicide. Dr. Orenflicker, David, thank you for joining us this episode. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And thank you also to our co-hosts, Drs. Alan Atkins and Joshua Poole. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Let's get psyched.